are people who gather around God's word and celebrate these incredible stories of what God is doing in our world. The second one we wanted to look at under this heading, um, the heart of the church, was deep and authentic relationships. We're going to have a look um, today at Ephesians chapter uh, chapter 2, verses 11 through to 22. But we're f- especially focusing on Paul's vision of what the church is towards the end of this passage and some of the language that he uses there. Sometimes we think um, that the early church had it real easy. That the Spirit of God just swept through and, and things were simple. Yet here is a passage that reminds us that some of the greatest challenges the church has ever faced were faced immediately as a result of the Spirit of God that went before the church into all the world and got involved in people's lives who were different to us. And a new community was being formed in pain and misunderstanding, isolation for some, welcome and, uh, you know, I'm I'm a central person for others. It was not easy for the early church. And probably the one who took most of the brunt of the pain of, of the church working out who it was in the early church was the Apostle Paul. Because he moved between two worlds. The Jewish world, which he knew so wonderfully, wonderfully well, and the rest of the nations which he felt profoundly called to go and welcome into the new temple of God. Let's find out what that temple or that house was. Let's have a read. Ephesians 2, 11 to 22. Don't forget that you Gentiles, that is the nations, you people from the nations, used to be outsiders. You were called uncircumcised heathens by the Jews who were proud of their circumcision, even though it affected only their bodies and not their hearts. In those days, you were living apart from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship among the people of Israel, and you did not know the covenant promises God had made to them. You lived in this world without God and without hope. But now you have been united with Christ Jesus. Once you were far away from God, but now you have been brought near to him through the blood of Christ. For Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles in one people when, in his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. 
He did this by ending the system of law with its commandments and regulations. He made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating in himself one new people from the two groups. Together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross and our hostility toward each other was put to death. He brought this good news of peace to you Gentiles who were far away from him and peace to the Jews who were near. Now all of us can come to the Father through the same Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done for us. So now you Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners. You are citizens along with all God's holy people. You are members of God's family. Together, we are his house, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, and the cornerstone is Christ Jesus himself. We are carefully joined together in him, becoming a holy temple for the Lord. Through him, you Gentiles are also being made part of this dwelling where God lives by his spirit. Can we have a look at the next slide? I love this. Um, this is Caravaggio's um, painting of the, the dramatic turnaround of Paul on the road to Damascus. You know the story in Acts. Um, Paul is going to Damascus to persecute the church of Jesus Christ. And he is doing this because he is a good Jew. He is, um, in fact, if some of his boasts are to be taken seriously in his letters, Paul thinks and knows that he was exceptional as a Jew. He was exemplary. He knew all the law. He was ultimately fiercely, fiercely zealous for the temple of God. In fact, as I read all of that collection of boast, I think to myself, um, Paul is not only an up-and-coming superstar in the Jewish world. He is quite possibly one of the next high priests, top of the top in the Jewish hierarchy. Paul is ultimately a zealot for the temple. He wants it to be pure. He is literally offended by the idea that this Jesus-following church, this Jesus-following community, would go out and start to invite people into their understanding of God from beyond the Jewish borders. And so here he is, going along the Damascus Road, heading to a city where he has letters, giving him permission to put the Christians in jail. And he has a vision from God that throws him to the ground. He is blind 
for a number of days and things begin to turn around for Paul. He has this vision of, of all people, Jesus. Why, Paul, are you persecuting me? And Paul, we would think over a number of years, possibly more than a decade, finds himself hanging around the very people he sought to persecute and pull down and learning from this Jesus a new vision of reality and ultimately a new vision of the temple or the holy place of God. Sometimes I I think Paul, um, at at this point, we think of Paul as completely changing. But there are elements that might make us think that maybe Paul stays the same, at least in some aspects. As we read this passage, as we read Paul writing to this Ephesian church that is made up in part, we believe, of people with Jewish origins and obviously in a big part of people with other customs and other histories and other family trees, the nations. We just might realise if we think through the zealotry through which, the, through which Paul writes to the Ephesian church, we just might realise that he is as zealous for the temple of God as he ever was. The only difference is that he doesn't see the temple as the big building in the middle of Jerusalem anymore. He sees the temple as the followers of Jesus who gather around Jesus and learn from him. He sees the church as the people. And he says, you are the temple of of the Spirit of God. You are the dwelling place of the Spirit of God. Now this starts to help me make sense of Paul because he's gone from investing everything, everything, into the temple, into the building, into climbing the hierarchy, into understanding all the laws, into making decisions that support the agenda of the temple. But now he is doing exactly the same thing and he is so convinced of this that he can put all of that effort that was going to give him all of the worldly praise, he can now put all of that effort into tiny, insignificant little communities right across the Roman Empire that have no buildings, that 
have a level of diversity that Paul has probably never quite got his head around. There's plenty of diversity within the Jewish world. But can you imagine if you start to take a category that says all of the nations, all of the customs, all of the different people groups across the world are welcome into these tiny little new communities. And honestly, I know some scholars who think that there are about maybe 30 people in the whole city of Ephesus who claim to be following this Jesus. They have no property. They secretly meet in homes. They are persecuted and feared by the empire. They are persecuted and feared by some of the zealous Jews. And to this little community, Paul turns all his effort, all his vision for the world, all his sense of call from God, all of his knowledge and skill now goes into caring for, writing to, loving and teaching these tiny little communities of Jesus. So here's a picture. This is a model, by the way. Um, it's, not a, it's not there anymore. This is the temple we think, what we think it looked like, uh, the temple of Herod in about Paul's time. And if we have a look at the next slide, you'll see that there is um, a court of the Gentiles. So people from all over the world would come to see this marvel. Um, but there is, just a, a, around that central bit, there's a fence. And if you belonged to um, any of the nations other than Jerusalem, you could come and you could look, you could visit, um, but you were not allowed to, uh, to go beyond that fence. And the consequence was death. So the people who ran the temple would take you out at that point and um, it would all be over. A very, um, a very strong sense of separation. Yet here in our reading today, we find Paul addressing uh, specifically the Gentiles. Now, this may have been kind of a language in the early church that people weren't openly using. So Paul, but yet Paul steps right into the midst of a fierce divide and he names it. In fact, some people think from the very beginning of this letter, from the opening sentence, he articulates two groups, which could have been very controversial for him to do. And now we get to this passage at the beginning of chapter 2, and Paul singles out the Gentiles, insisting on talking just to the people who look like outsiders to those who think they're the inside. And he reminds them of how far away from God they were, how far away from the temple they were. 
you didn't even understand the laws. You did, you, it was complete ignorance. You didn't even understand the teachings of Scripture. So he paints this picture of the nations being far away from God. But then he says something extraordinary has happened. Jesus has come into our world and by his blood we have all been reconciled to God. Actually, he doesn't say that. And I'm not arguing that that's untrue. But Paul does not say that here. At least not until a little later in this passage. Before that, he says Jesus is our peace. He is the one who has broken down the wall of hostility, to use Paul's words in this passage, making two people groups into one. And he has brought the one group to God. What an extraordinary story is ours. You know, I love living in Australia where we uh, are multicultural and we have all these people from all over the world. One of my favourite things to go to in Canberra is the Multicultural Festival where I just like wandering around and eating stuff I've never seen and getting into conversations where I can with people from all over the world. But, you know, I've been to a couple of those multicultural festivals and, and left feeling slightly unsatisfied because it felt kind of like a veneer. Only in comparison to what I have experienced in the church that I grew up in, that I visit now, that I've all the churches I've been a part of across my lifetime. I have met people from all over the world in these communities. And I absolutely love it. Because I'm not just being told by an outsider about someone else's culture. I'm actually learning, learning, progressive, not arrived at, but I am learning to understand and love people who are different to me. And I feel tremendously, tremendously enriched by the people from all over the world that I have got to know. Not that I have said, you know, live in the same suburb with me, but people I have got to know from all over the world. And it all comes back to Paul's insistence that the temple walls, this wall of hostility is to be broken down. It has been broken down by the one we worship. And a brand new community has been formed. And the essence of that community is friendship with God and friendship with one another. Right down to the basics of Jesus, isn't it? Love God, love your neighbour.
And these little communities that Paul is willing to suffer and ultimately die serving, these little communities are where the Spirit of God dwells. I wonder if you've underestimated what you do when you gather. I wonder if you've underestimated how um, significant it is when you, representing this Jesus who died for all people, invite a neighbour over to your home, get to know them and welcome them. In the hope that you will be able to share your deepest belief about humanity that Christ died to welcome all and form a new community. Built not on hostility, not on the walls we as people build, but is actually actively demolishing the walls between us. Paul in Ephesians, um, at this stage he's talking lots of... um, philosophy or theology, if you like. Uh, But he goes on as a good uh, rhetorically trained um, Pharisee. He goes on and he moves from theory to practice. Let's have a look. So this is Ephesians 4, a couple of chapters later. Therefore I, a prisoner for serving the Lord, beg you, to lead a life worthy of your calling. For you have been called by God. Always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. For there is one body and one Spirit, just as you have been called to one glorious hope for the future. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, in all, and living through all. It's beautifully practical, isn't it? It boils down to, are you going to be a listener? Are you going to be humble? Are you going to make allowance that we are all on a journey learning to live like God, learning to allow Jesus' values to permeate us. I actually think Paul said this much more simply in Romans. Uh, Let's have a look. Do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. You know, sometimes Paul doesn't have a good reputation for living at peace with everyone. If you are a reader of his letters, you will notice that there are times when he names people, when he talks about people who've left the community, when his heart breaks for some of these people and his anger rages at some of these people. I don't know 
that this is quite as hypocritical as we might be tempted to jump in and point the finger at Paul and say, look, you couldn't even do it yourself. Paul, for one, is a learner on the road with Jesus like the rest of us. But, you know, I've got a theory that the point at which this zealousy clicks in and his anger pushes against people in the church is often, if not always, around the protection of the community of God. The protection of these fragile, small communities that Paul is convinced are now the temple of God. That's where his zealousy clicks in. That's where he says, enough, you will not abuse these little communities. You will not play them down. And it's actually all boiling down to his profound belief that the people of God matter. That you matter. That I matter. That where you go and the freedom you claim is zealously guarded. Because I wonder what would have happened if this wall of hostility, these two groups within this early Christian church, I wonder what would have happened if one group simply conquered the other. I wonder what different story would be passed down to us. I wonder if we would even know the possibility of the church being as radically inclusive as pursuing this invitation for us to all move in the direction of being one. I want to show you a picture. This is my last little bit. This is a a picture of the, the church ruins at Ephesus. I did a Google search and I was trying to find out a little bit about the early Christian church in the city of Ephesus. And they've dug up a whole lot of things in Ephesus. And this is one of them. A lot of the other buildings look uh, look quite similar to this. So there's a the very famous ruin of, a, uh, of one of the libraries and it's got all these pillars and all of this stuff. But, you know, um, they can't find any building evidence, really, of the early church in Ephesus at the time of Paul. But somewhere along the line, they have become radically aligned with the empire to the point that they started building buildings that really resemble the temples of the empire in the first 300 years of the church. They started having leaders who made all the rules. 
They started having places that were special that they would come to. They started building colonnades so that they looked like everyone else. I I don't think Paul would have been very happy. I I think he would have said, hang on, we don't go to a temple. You are the temple. He would have said, we don't go to places where um, people lord it over us. We, we we, We are a community. God speaks through us. And I look at this ruin and I think to myself, it saddens me that the church has been tempted to move in the direction of everyone else. And it just looks like another temple. Smaller, sure. But in a smaller city, maybe that's expected. I wonder what's lost at this point. You might say, oh, look, they're, they're probably teaching the same stuff. They're, um, they're still gathering. They're still looking at the scriptures they have. You know, there's something good about this, perhaps. But I wonder what's lost when the church is taken out of those 30 homes and placed in the centre and starts uh, not inviting people into our lives but starts inviting people into our temple into our building I learnt this week about the guy who started um, Mosaic Baptist Church which was Belconnen Baptist Church back then Um, I think his name's Garth but every time I say that I want to say Garth Brooks but that would be wrong Garth Icon, thank you. So he was the first pastor here at Belconnen Baptist Church. And you know what? Uh, his vision for the church was this, and he articulated it. Apparently, it's in all our historical notes. It was the original vision of this community. And you know what he said? I imagine a church in every street. That would make your home and your family. That would make your place of work a place where the Spirit of God was alive and vital and the grace and peace of God was evident. I like his vision. And I think Paul would too. In fact, I think Paul would say, this vision and this behavior is the heart of the church. Amen.